0: morning, church. Happy to be here uh, with you. Those of you who are tuning in online, thanks so much for uh, tuning in online. Like uh, David said, my name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff. I get to be your uh, teaching pastor uh, for today. Very excited to get into uh, Psalm 119. If you're just uh, tuning in for the first time or gathering with us uh, for the first time, since the year started, we kicked off a series uh, in the Psalms. just called Are You Listening? Uh, Just trying to teach our church how to meditate uh, before the Lord. So, for those of you that are in missional communities, you know, like after we do meal together, we spend 10 to 15 minutes uh, together just in silence, just to kind of sit in uh, God's Word and see what it says, see what it's saying to us, try to think through our emotions a little bit. The, the whole series has been really about um, how, the, how to have a gospel centered approach. Uh, to our emotions, not to listen to them louder, more loudly than everything else, but to listen to God's Word and our emotion uh, at the same time. Now we're spending uh, roughly five weeks uh, as a third week in Psalm 119. And as we entered into Psalm 119, the psalm uh, provoked us to ask the question, do you love the voice of God? Do you love the voice of God? Did you even know you could love the voice of God? Did you know that was an option, that you could love the voice of God? Do you love the voice of God. Psalm 119 is 176 verses. 176 verses. Of the 176 verses, 171 of them speak to God's voice. The psalmist loves the voice of God. He loves listening to the voice of God. He loves pleading with and asking the Lord to, to reveal a, a better word, a louder word, a better voice, and a louder voice. Every verse except for five is the psalmist crying out in regards to. The voice of God. That's pretty spectacular, yeah? So do you love the voice of God? Is it Enough. And so, as we sat together this week on Tuesdays, we do worship planning meetings. I talk about them a lot. It's, uh, I don't mean to be disrespectful to all of y'all that I meet with, but it's my favorite meeting out of the whole week. It's super fun. Not that you're not super fun, you're just okay in comparison. And so, uh, it's a great time that we have together. Super fun. And in that, we were just talking about the question like, well, how do we know that we can trust the voice of God? How do we know that we can trust? The Bible. And so Jeff was like, Hey, do you think you could just kind of nerd out on us a little bit? And I was like, Yeah, absolutely. Because this, if it were up to science and science alone, if that were sufficient, you would all be sold. If it were up to empirical evidence, you would be sold. If it were up to the historicity, is what that's called, or the historical accuracy of the biblical narrative, it would be enough. And if you think, I don't know, let me just share some things with you. If it were up to science and science alone, it would be enough. To save you. This week, I got to kind of geek out and read up on some of the historians that are the reason we have the history that we have uh, today. So, people like Cornelius Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, three of these men are some of the top historians that we've ever had. And whenever it comes to historical accuracy and biblical accuracy, there are top three cats that we go to. None of which, by the way, are Christians. And so what's interesting is that not only do scientists write about the historical accuracy of the Bible, but more non-Christians have written about the historical accuracy of the Bible than Christians. Think about that. More atheists have spent more time writing about the historical accuracy and how it parallels human history. They were alive during this time. Two of the three men, not only did they capture history, but they captured Christians. They hated Christians. They called Christianity a disease. They would torture people for fun so that they would denounce their Christian faith and they would turn to the Roman gods of their time. They would worship the Caesars of their time. And yet they would agree that the historicity from a scientific perspective, the historical accuracy of the Bible is sufficient. Isn't that interesting? well, what about recent years, Corey? That was like a long time ago. Well, whenever I was in seminary, now that I'm getting older, like 10, 11 years ago, whatever it was, whenever I was in seminary, Harvard or Yale, one of the two, were trying to disprove the historical accuracy of the Bible, the very thing that these non-believers said was actually true. And they thought they could do so by dismantling the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And so they sought to disprove the, uh, um, the Elimelech tribe in the book of Genesis. Started this archeological dig, spent all this money, millions of dollars, some of the greatest minds in the world trying to disprove the historicity of the Bible. Lo and behold, the final day of their archeological dig, what do you think they find? They find a statue, and they start digging. They're like, oh my gosh, we found this statue. Not thinking at all that it was the Melchites. They like, we found this statue, the greatest discovery. We found civilization. This is amazing. Dude, just like Andy in Toy Story stamped on the bottom of a piece of, stamped on the bottom foot of a toy, they pull this statue out of the ground. What do you think stamped on the bottom of it? The Amalekites. Boom. They found, like, the whole entire civilization of the Amalekites. Historicity, historical accuracy proven. Pretty cool, yeah? We can continue, and we can say, well, that's, like, history, and that's that, but surely, like, there's human error, like, there's got to be human error. There's no way that some monk sat there with a quill and ink in hand and transcribed the Bible with such integrity and authenticity that it has not gotten a little jacked up over the last 2,000 years. Surely human error would be a part of it. Well, what's interesting about that is that um, in the last four years, whenever we still met at the YMCA, they found a scroll in the Middle East. Lo and behold, that Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern scroll they found was none other than the book of Leviticus. So they shipped the book of Leviticus over in a scroll to the Smithsonian Museum, and then they call Tony Stark, that's Iron Man, and Jarvis, and they come, <laughs> and they freaking digitally unroll the scroll. They don't even have to open it. They just, I don't know how that works. They just digitally unroll it. And they're like, lo and behold, it's the book of Leviticus. It had a 0.05% error in comparison to everything else that had been printed into what we would have in our Bible. 0. Zero 05, that's 99.95% biblically, historically accurate. The historical accuracy, the historicity of it is fun, yes? I think there's more we could do, right? We could talk about the statistical probability of 66 books being written over the course of 1,500 years across multiple genres, across multiple cultures, across multiple, um, I almost said they are artists in many ways, but across multiple writers, multiple authors is the word I'm looking for, across all of that time. Think about everything that happens in... Over the course of 1,500 plus years, surely there had to be some error. And yet at the same time, do you know that the statistical probability of the Bible maintaining its redemptive red line from Genesis creation to new creation, where every story is pointing to Messiah, the statistical probability of that is 0.0000005. It is a statistical improbability that we have the Bible. It's statistically impossible that we have this. So in Psalm 119.23, whenever the psalmist says, man, the word is wonderful, if you think what's wonderful about it, literally everything, that we have it, is literally a miracle. There is not a book ever in history across any religion, world religion, or spirituality that can say the same thing, scientifically speaking. Now, uh, are you ready to profess faith in Jesus? Yeah, It's fun, right? That's fun. That's cool. That's great. I love that Jeff called me a nerd and allowed me to research that stuff and be reminded of much of it. But the reality is, while science is super cool, it's not enough to save you. Uh, Otherwise, dude, we'd be jumping up and down in our streets right now, rushing the the gates of the door to go live on mission and see our non-Christians come to faith. And we just kind of sit here a little bewildered. It's not enough. And so the Lord himself has to open your eyes to his word. Listen, and until God himself opens his eyes, your eyes to his word, it'll just remain a textbook. It'll it'll remain a list of do's and do's, black and white test textbook for you to engage in. The Lord himself has to open your eyes. Big idea is this. The master's word reveals a servant's heart. It reveals and exposes our heart, but it most certainly reveals and exposes the heart of Jesus, the ultimate master, the ultimate servant three points to help get the point across to master's generosity point one point two the servant's heart and then point three check this out people pay good money for this the secret to life come on now come on somebody let's go i couldn't think of anything better and so secret to life fun game if you want to come up with a different way to word the third point go for it and give it to me afterwards let's start with the master's generosity when you're ready Say ready and read verse 17 for you. All right, here we go. Verse 17, deal bountifully, somebody say "bountifully," bountifully, or generously, so we get the master's generosity, with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. And so as we engage and enter into Psalm 119, I had the... Great task and privilege of, of unpacking the whole stanza for you today. It'd be like verse 17 through verse 24. That's the way Psalm 119 is pinned. If you remember, it is for every Greek or every Hebrew letter of the alphabet, there's a different stanza that begins with that letter of the alphabet. So as uh, King David is pinning Psalm 119, if he were to use the English alphabet, every uh, word that began in the first stanza would begin with the letter A. And in, in the second stanza, every letter that would begin would begin with the letter what? B, and then C, and then D, and then so on and so forth. So most scholars believe that King David penned this, and that he penned it across his whole entire life, perhaps. It's an incredible masterpiece. It's a literary masterpiece in Psalm 119. It's incredible, and it should be, because it's in God's Word. But as I said in it this week, I could not escape verse 17. So we're just going to stay in 17 for the whole 40-ish minutes that I get with you. Deal bountifully, he said, we're going to start there the psalmist comes out and he's pleading with God to deal generously with himself. This is a plea from the psalmist to the Lord specifically in light of his voice. And so the assumption again is that this is King David because as at, at the end of this stanza he says even though princes set plotting against me, princes sit plotting against me your servant will meditate on your statutes. So we have plenty of proof to believe that it is King David the setting here and he's praying, he's pleading, he's asking God for these statutes that they would be, that they would ring louder than everything else. And so if you remember from two weeks ago, I kind of unpacked the difference between a statue and a statute, if you were here. So statue is a structure that stands taller than every other structure around it, for the most part. A statute is God's word. And so it's King David coming and saying, I need your word. I need your voice. I need you to ring louder than everything around me. And listen, can we not agree that this is King David? Maybe he had some loud voices in his ear as the king of Israel, princes in his ear, other kings in his ear, nagging people in his ear. And so he's saying, God, I need you to ring louder. I need you to speak louder. I need your voice to be louder. And in that, we start to see the falling condition of ourselves. Because more often than not, whenever confrontation comes, we don't ask God to speak a little bit louder than our current argument we're in, do it. Like when you're fighting with your wife, or your husband, or your kids are being monsters, or your best friend has just done something horrific to you, what do we do? Dude, louder means I win, am I right? Yep. Y'all, y'all don't wanna be real on a Sunday morning, okay? <laughs> louder means we win, right? And when you're in a confrontation, that's what, you either get really, really quiet, which in a way speaks volumes, okay? For those of you like, no, I just go off into the room, and process, you're still speaking really loud, your body language is still loud. But it is, what, I'm, what I'm saying is this. Whenever confrontation comes, whenever you're getting into the, a debate, the majority of people, they want to speak louder. They're not taking time to say, God, you know, just in this moment, in this moment, Lord, I just need you to get a little bit louder than me. And so more often than not, people think loud means win, you win. But loud doesn't always mean you win. Loud, more often than not, in the midst of an argument, means you're arrogant. It uh, means you're egotistical, if you think of that word. Uh, probably prideful. Uh, maybe even abusive, depending on the volume and what you're saying. There's a lot of things that we can associate with loud in the midst of an argument. It doesn't necessarily mean something good. And so what, how do we uh, transition our posture such that we actually can identify with the psalmist and his humility? Well, the first thing is we can't do that, but God's Word most certainly can. So let me introduce you to a, a theological term here called total depravity. I'm going to unpack total depravity for you if you're a note taker, keeping notes online. Total depravity, theological term for you. Pastor Jeff, who was just up here uh, playing keys, leads us in worship more often uh, than not, likes to quote Romans 3.23. It's not going to be on the screen. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All sounds a lot like All, right? Doesn't sound like some, just a few people here and there, right? The people you don't like in your life or you want to judge on Facebook. But all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This is why we do what's called a call to confession. So every week in our liturgy is what it's called up here. We take you through a call to confession. Jess just led us through one in light of this beautiful woman she got to talk to in New York and the reality that a pastor is not preaching the word, right? Calling us to look. Do we enter into the word? As well, right? If you don't address the reality that you are fallen, that, that, that you are born into and under the curse of, slave, uh, of being a slave to sin, you're never going to understand the gospel. And so total depravity is just that. That we have done nothing to deserve this, but we have been born into and under the curse of Adam and Eve. That whenever they rebelled against God the Father, they're in perfect relationship with Him. When they rebel against God the Father, sin begins to infiltrate every single thing that we know in the cosmos. Think about it. Everything that you interact with on a daily basis is dying. Yes or no? Every single thing that you interact with. That's the result of the curse of sin with Adam and Eve, when they rebelled, we were born into and under that sin. And so what's interesting about that is that people have told me that, I haven't had this conversation, people have told me, when you say something like that, people get offended. But how can you get offended by that? I literally just said, you did nothing. You've done nothing to be born into and under this curse. And so let me just address that. If you feel offended by that, you have done nothing, and you've been born into and under the curse of sin, it actually reveals a sense of pride and arrogance, Right? I didn't say anything about you. I'm saying what Adam and Eve did have led to a curse that we have been born into and under. You still tracking with me? Okay. And so the reality is then we have to talk about sin and the things that keep us separated from Jesus, or else you don't have a need for Jesus. This is why we do a call to confession to remind us, oh, yes, I I do experience, I have been born under that sin. I might have some things together. I'm not saying you're not moral. I'm not saying you didn't pay your taxes this year, although you're about to find out if you didn't pay your taxes this year. I'm not saying there's anything negative against you. What I'm saying is we're all a little jacked up, and it has to do with Adam and Eve being born into and under this curse. And so if we don't talk about it, you don't have a need for Jesus. There's no reason to be here. Just go be Buddhist. Right? If you don't no need to call yourself a Christian, if you're not gonna talk about the whole entire aspect, all aspects of the gospel, just go be something else, right? Yeah. I'm not being mean, I'm just saying, that's, that is what separates us from everyone else. It's not just total depravity, we're gonna get there, but that we have someone who stepped into that depravity. The Bible says, not Corey, we we're born into and under the curse and the weight of sin. What's beautiful about total depravity is that it, it promotes in us and evokes in us Humility. Think, just think about it for a second. Imagine if Christians generally, uh, generally looked across all of creation and they said, Man, we are all in the same predicament. We were all born into this situation and we all equally need a, need a Savior. Total depravity does not care about your race. Sin doesn't care about your race, doesn't care about your ethnicity, doesn't care about your socioeconomic status. Doesn't care about if you're born in America, born in Uganda, born in Mexico, does not care. And so total depravity, in effect, then breeds in us a level of humility where we can look across the room or across the table from one another or look at something happening on the news and go, dang, we're not that different. Turns out you're just as messy as I am. Are you still tracking? So that like breeds in us a level of humility. Genesis one, most certainly created in God's image. Genesis three, all hell broke loose on creation and we've been born into that mess. Now, practically speaking as an individual, here's how I personally think about this. Literally, I deserve nothing, and yet I have life? Well, now all of a sudden, life isn't so bad. I deserve nothing, and yet look at my house. As I'm sitting here processing, do we build out of our house? Do we buy a new house? Do we sell a house? Genuine conversations we're having in our family. I can take a step back and say, at the end of the day, none of that matters. I don't even deserve what I got. Can I just be happy with what I got, what I have? Or think about your relationship. On your worst day, if you're in an engaged, dating, whatever, best friend, marriage, relationship, you're fighting with your best friend. I deserve so much worse. My God, I don't even deserve this relationship. Well, now all of a sudden, a level of humility comes in. At least she wants to yell at me. Praise the Lord. My wife <laughs> wants to yell at me. Babe, I'm just giving you a reason to stick around. You know, like, it, but it, you see what I'm saying? Like, it breeds in you some... Humility, whenever my kids are being crazy or disrespectful, which doesn't happen a lot, but whenever it does happen, you want to shrink them. You know, you can't do that. For the record, social media, you can't do that. It's going to become a soundbite. I'm going to become a soundbite. I got blown up once on social media this week, become a soundbite. And so, whenever your kids are acting foul and you would like to lay some holy hands on them, all of a sudden, I don't even deserve those kids. I don't deserve my babies, and yet the Lord has been so gracious to give them to me. I deserve nothing. I have done nothing to be put in this position. I can do nothing to save myself. That is what total depravity as a theological term means. Now, whenever you get there, like in your inner soul, church, when you get, I have done nothing, I deserve nothing, and yet there's someone who's going to save me, redeem me, because I can't take care of it myself. As humility breeds in you, you don't care to be called a slave or a servant to Christ anymore. Because you see how generous the master is. He's literally done everything. He has dealt bountifully. Does that make sense? Second point is then, that understanding is what drives in, second point, a servant's heart. He has dealt bountifully, yes and amen. And then a servant's heart. Verse 17, still in 17. Deal bountifully with your what? Servant. Servant. Deal bountifully with your, one more time. All right, there she is that I may live and keep your word. So what does it look like to live as a servant? What does it look like to live as a slave, live as a bond servant? There's hundreds of different things that I could have said here I want to get into. I was going to talk about the difference between African-American slavery and the slavery of the Old Testament, what it means to be a bond servant, and all these things. But instead, uh, what I'm going to do, if you want to dialogue about that, we can after the service. I'm going to share a story out of the book of Mark. Uh, it is my absolute favorite story in the Bible. I say that a lot, but this, this week is my absolute favorite story in the whole Bible. Um, the Seraphonician woman comes before Jesus. I'm going to set it up for you, then I'm going to read you their, their story. Jesus has been, um, he's come, he's lived the perfect life, he's sharing the gospel, he's doing miraculous healings, he's doing everything that Jesus has come to do. The religious folk, keep this in mind, church folk, the religious folk are, are not having it. And so Jesus actually leaves the Jewish region to go into the non-Jewish region. So you had the Jews and you had basically everything else. Whenever the Bible says something like pagans or it says something like the ethne or, or, or whatever, or the Samaritans, like all these other spaces that they have, Jesus is there. The Pharisees are only meeting him with opposition. They're the ones that are going to end up killing him, by the way. The religious folk killed Jesus. Keep that in mind. And so he leaves that region and then he goes into this region where this woman, this Pagan is this non-Jew, non-God-fearing woman, as far as we can tell, until this moment, lives. Now, this is important to note because in their culture, okay, listen up, in their culture, women were not allowed to talk to men in public anyway. And so not only that, but a non-Jewish woman was most certainly not allowed to speak to a Jewish man, specifically a Jewish rabbi. Now, keep in mind, this woman did not do anything. She was just born a different race, ostracized because she didn't believe the same things that they believed. The Jews would have called this woman unclean, and they would have called her a pagan dog. Tracking still? Now in our culture, I can walk up to you and say, what's up, dog? No big deal. We're going to shake hands. We're going to bro-hug it out. It's like, whatever, you know? What's up, bro? What's up, dog? Now around the world globally, okay, that's very bad. You don't go up. Like if we go to Kenya together, we don't walk up in Kenya and say, what's up, dog? Because they don't view dogs like we do, right? You all put dogs in bags. You take dogs to puppy hotels for manicures and stuff like that. No. Those dogs just eat the scraps. That's what dogs do the majority of the world. And so they would call her a Gentile, pagan dog. According to the Jews, she was the picture of total depravity. She deserved nothing, no one. That's what they would think of. As a result, though, she comes to Jesus, highly countercultural, begs him, begs him, Lord, save my daughter, she's demon-possessed. Save my daughter. Check out this dialogue. I think this is so beautiful. Mark seven twenty seven says this. And Jesus said to her, okay, let the children, that's Israel, let the children, Israel, the Jews, be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Talking a little tongue-in-cheek, verse 28. But she answered him whimsically, whims, whimsical, how do you say that word? Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs, flips it in the Greek, yet even the dogs, the pups, the house pets, technically in the Greek, under the table, eat the children's crumbs. Let's read it again. Let the children be fed first, Jesus says, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, this is incredible. First and foremost, this is literally the only person in the Bible thus far that has gotten a parable from Jesus. This female, non-God-fearing woman Shout out to our God-fearing ladies for just a second, right? Like, she's the only one. He spent countless hours with a disciple. And they're like, what do you mean you gotta go away? What do you mean your dad's building a house? What do you mean you're gonna build up this temple in three days? They're marginally unaware, like most men. The disciples have no idea what's going on. Just read the book of John. They have three chapters about it. What do you mean? Why do you call him Doubting Thomas? He's willing for three years, for crying out loud. This woman's willing for 30 seconds, and she gets it. And not only does she get the parable, man, but she, very like, is, is whims, whims, I can't say the word, Whimsical. Whimsical. She's whimsical about it. Like she's witty in her banter with him. So let's unpack it a little bit. Jesus says, why would I feed you this miracle? Why would I feed you this miracle, you Gentile pagan dog? I've come to feed the children first. I've come to feed Jews first, Israel first, my, my covenant people first. That's who I have come to feed. Now, he isn't necessarily calling her a dog. There's wordplay here in the original language. And what he's saying is this. You know how I should see you. Like, look at how everyone sees you. You know how I should see you. I should see you as the dog that you are deserving of nothing that you are. That's the way I should see you. And what's incredible about this, what's so beautiful and so incredible is that whenever she's confronted with the word of God in the flesh, she doesn't freak out about it, man. She's not like the audacity of you to say that to me. Who do you think that you are? According to the world, she has every single purpose to be angry at Jesus. And that's not at all what she does. She has every right to be offended, every right to be angry, every right to be insulted, according to the world. But listen here, your worldview and your perception changes whenever you understand who the king is. She's not just standing in front of anyone, church. She's standing in front of the king of king and the Lord of lords. And it changes everything about the way she sees herself. And then she responds, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs, yet even the pups, even the house pets under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is so beautiful to see in, this, in the text. Like this woman could have been all offended, could have been all angry, and yet instead, what, just think about him dealing bountifully, like his presence alone was gracious, And so she's understanding like her position before the king. And what she's saying is this, I am your servant. I don't deserve anything, right? And and, and so much so, listen here, so much so that if I have to eat the doggone breadcrumbs from underneath the table, then let me get on my hands and knees, just feed me. And so it's no different than the psalmist who's sitting here, and he's crying out to the Lord, God, give me your word. Deal bountifully with me. Deal generously with me. Give me your word. Have your voice speak louder than every other voice. No different than this woman. And she's she's here, and she's saying, like, Lord, your voice speaks louder than all the Pharisees, than all the Jews, than everyone who's ever looked down on me in culture. These women, when walking through Jewish territory, would have to walk through saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. Could you imagine? Like, imagine how difficult it would be in their society to be this female. And yet here he is, king of kings, creator of all things, by which everything is made and created through, standing before her. And she says, just feed me the crumbs. You get it? Like, that's humility. Like, when you stand in front of Jesus, understanding you deserve nothing, and yet he's given you everything, a crumb is enough. A crumb is merciful enough. Like right? for one person to not have to go into the gates of hell, that's enough. If only one person went to the kingdom of heaven, that would be enough. You understand? That's what it that's what happens like when you get total depravity. Like it creates in you all this humility, this equal playing field all of a sudden. Changes the way you view everything. It literally changes the way you view everything. So the psalmist here is plean, deal bountifully, be generous with your servant, with your slave, when you understand the generosity of the king, man, you're okay being a servant. Because you realize, I have done nothing to deserve nothing. I can do nothing to get it back. And he's given me something? Man, praise God. Hey, that'll preach, dude. I wish I was just sitting there getting to hear that. That's so good. This <laughs> just good for my soul. Dude, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but gosh, that's good. Mm. So the gospel breeds in us. Its- It should breed in us a humble confidence. That's what you see there. I am a servant, and also I get to make requests. I'm a servant, but I get to go into the throne room with my master and make requests. And they're not prideful and arrogant and egotistical, because you're just asking for more of him. A humble confidence. So the master's generous, the servant's heart, the secret to life. Best point I've ever written, uh, the secret to life. Whatever. Verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I might, what's he say? Live and keep your word, okay? That I might live and keep your word. Those two things go together, by the way. That I might live and keep your word. Now, now, what he doesn't say here is, deal you with your servant that I might enter into your word in desperate times of need whenever I've spent little to no time with you because I don't actually care about being in a relationship with you until things pop off negatively in my relationship or my family or with my kids or with my vocation. Then I feel all ridden with shame and doubt and frustration, and I effectively have nowhere else to go and finally turn to you. That's not what he says. That's a lot. That's not what he said. Probably 24 <laughs> verses, but not what he said. He said, no, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Again, it's just like this plea where he's looking to the master and he's making this request from the master, but it's not anything negative because he's just asking for more of the master. He's saying, give me the keys to life. Like I wanna live and also keep your word because he knows, the servant knows, the psalmist Know At the end of the day, we know, we know this. That the secret to life is not in some dumb self-help book out there you buy on Amazon. It's not even fully and totally and ultimately just setting in here. It is this in combination with the word that puts on flesh. That's the secret to life. And so we go into God's words to hear and to receive and to see his commands and his statutes and his covenants and all the things we talked about two weeks ago. And in doing so, it reveals God's character. That's why we read God's word. Right? So if you go into God's word and you see and find his character, what happens is as you read the word of God, it begins to read you. As you open up God's word, it begins to open you up. As you pour yourself into God's word, it begins to pour into you. And then you begin to see God's character for who he is. He's holy, righteous, and he's perfect. And you think, dang, how do I even get to come into your presence? I should be obliterated at the very thought of you. That's how little I deserve. And yet, so the psalmist is saying here, check this out. psalmist is saying, Pipe down over there. Right? Psalmist is saying that. Just kidding. Psalmist is saying that, dude. He's saying that's why, that's how he can come and he can say, "Give me more of you, as a servant to the master. Give me more. Let your voice ring louder. Let your word speak louder. Let your goodness be greater than everything else, every other voice that could ever exist in culture, up to and including our Christian brothers and sisters who maybe are not speaking the word to us sometimes. Let your word be more." For me, and you can come back and say, Why would he want that? Because he wants to see God's character. Why? Because when you're confronted with God's character, you're reminded of your depravity. Because if you step into his presence, you look at him, you go, Man, that's not me. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Right? Like God loves us as we are, right where we are, but he's not willing to leave us there. And so as we engage his word and we walk out obedience, the beauty is that we get grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy upon mercy to walk out his commandments, to try to walk in his character the best that we can, even though we cannot fully do it. Hopefully that's not too wordy for you. So what we have here is this King David and he's coming before the king. He's saying, command me. He's got the good shepherd coming before the better shepherd saying, command me, I need to see you. Do you see that? You feel that plea in there. It's a plea that he has. The reality is I can start a sermon off telling you about all the cool scientific (laughs) truths of the Bible, but until the Lord himself opens up your eyes to see him in that way, this remains a textbook. It's a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. Instead of whenever you read it, man, and it comes to life, living and active is just, let us read earlier, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword that cuts through bone and marrow. It cuts you, it confronts you, it becomes beautiful. You begin to see Jesus and who he is and then the word in concert with the Holy Spirit. Not your good works, but your feeble attempt to good works along with the Holy Spirit and God's word begins to chisel you and shape you to look more and more like Jesus. We need the word as both text and flesh. I want you to think about this before I bump onto the the gospel. Every other religion in the world would agree with total depravity, and then you stop. Just think about it. Whatever little or whatever much you know about other world religions or spiritualities, think about it. Every other religion in the world has a narrative that that says this, there's something wrong with humanity. Uh, Humanity is the problem. Now look to humanity to fix the problem. Tell me how that would work. Think about if you're into yoga and you start dabbling in something called yogi, which is a spirituality, there's something in there real hot in our culture right now called transcendental meditation. And what they want you to do is they want you to set, practice a certain breathing pattern to clear your mind. They want you to clear your mind. Biblical Christianity is the only thing that doesn't want you to clear your mind, but fill your mind with more of who God is and more of his character, more of his righteousness and more of his grace and more of his mercy. Turns out whenever you leave that transcendental session, you go in at 205, you come out at 230, all the problems still exist. They're, they're still there. When you think about Buddhism, you think about anything else, you think about Islam and the law, much of their Bible reflects our Bible. Do you know what the primary difference is in the early stages of the Quran and the Old Testament? They leave out, listen to this, they leave out anything that paints the patriarchs in a bad light, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Anything that makes them look bad, they don't put into there. They try to remove total depravity while saying at the same time, humanity has an issue, humanity is the issue, you need to save yourself. Make sure you pray, make sure you do this, make sure you do that. They would agree with total depravity, but there is no savior. You still tracking? Am I talking too fast? You still tracking with me? Like biblical Christianity is the only world religion, literally, literally, that says humanity is the issue. Humanity has an issue. And someone's gonna come from outside of that system and fix it, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. And we have that Jesus. And he comes and he walks a perfect life that we most certainly cannot walk. He lives um, an incredible life faithfully to the Father. He dies the death that we deserve to die because of total depravity on the cross, thus removing the curse of sin. He removes the effects of sin by dying in our place, buried, resurrects to new life, sends us the Holy Spirit. Why? So that in the midst of our depravity, listen to this, so that in the midst of our depravity, we can be seen as righteous and good, before the Father. It's called imputed. He imputes his goodness to us in the midst of our dysfunction and brokenness. You still dragging with me? This is, Welcome to seminary. This is, a good, this is good to know in the back of your mind. We have this Jesus. He's come. Ephesians 2 says this, and then I'll be done. I'll let Paul preach for me. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead. It's the definition of total depravity. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and when she once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, not some, but all, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Come on, somebody. Like the rest of mankind. Paul does not excuse anyone from that, church. Just like Romans 3.23 does not excuse anyone. All have sinned and all have fallen short. So also, the Apostle Paul here wrote Bible, right? He's saying that this is just who we are apart from Christ. This is what we do. We fall prey to culture. We fall prey to the world. We fall prey to sin in the flesh. Like, think this is Apostle Paul, right? Who, man, he nails it whenever he says, I cannot stop doing the things I hate doing, and I can't start doing the things I love to do. Is that anyone else's biography in here or what? Right? Like, gosh, he nails it. I'm like, that's me. I can't stop doing the very things that I hate to do that actually make me a sinner. And at the same time, I can't pick up the things that would make me righteous. I'm stuck. I feel like I'm stuck. And Paul says, yeah, you are. That's because of total depravity. There's this war that is raging inside of our chest, man, between the flesh and the spirit. And we know for certain that the spirit through Christ is going to win, but it does not mean there won't be some turmoil while we're here on earth doesn't mean bad things won't happen to really, really good people, morally good, great people. Total depravity is affected, affects everything and everyone. Paul gives a great definition for it. He says this, but God, here's your next tattoo, but God, being rich in mercy, right, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were children of wrath, even when we were sons of disobedience, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved, not by the commandments, not by the laws, not by your morality, not by your good works, not because you picked yourself up one day by your bootstraps and decided to be a good dude. That did not save you. If you think that's going to save you, try it, and you will feel defeated by 5 p.m. Just try to be really, really good one day, and by five o'clock, you're like, I'm done. Science didn't sell me. That did, okay? That sold me. And by grace you have been saved. Listen there. And then this is so crazy. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Think about this. The master who has everything, leaves his kingdom, comes and dwells among us who should be servants, becoming a servant himself so that he can go to the cross, die and raise and invite us into the master's throne room. Think about that. That's what this means. He's raised us up. He didn't just save us. He's actually bringing us up into his kingdom, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus by nothing we could do. Why would he do that? Here it is. So that in the coming ages, he might show, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The master becomes a servant so that we who are servants, although we act like masters, can actually be given everything. All the master's inheritance is given to us in Christ Jesus. Why does he do that? So for millennia, we can just kick back, man, and we can marvel at the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's why he does it. So that we look out, man, we can look out See, say, Corey was a total wretch to Christ. And on my best days and on my worst days, he loved me and you completely unconditionally. Regardless of our behaviors. Paul's like, case y'all are slow and didn't get it. Here it is again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen and amen. We have done nothing to be put in the position we were in. We can do nothing to get out of that position. The Lord Himself has to open your eyes, church. Science will not be enough. Knowledge will not be enough. Theology will not be enough community will not be enough, the Lord himself. And so if you're here today and you've not yet asked the Lord himself to open your eyes, to open your ears as to who he is and who you are in him, this doesn't even have to make all the sense in the world. If you're not open, ask him to open your eyes to that. Let me invite you to do that. And if you don't know where to begin, just read the book of Luke. If you're like, Corey, I hear you and that's, that's all good and well, I don't know where to start. Just read the book of Luke. Let's start there. Let me pray for you, and we'll take communion. Stand, stand up with me. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. It is good and right and holy, perfect. It is all these things, Lord. I pray, God, and ask that you would, um, God, I pray right now that, actually, you know what? I'm gonna exercise the text, Father. So as a servant, I wanna come before you as the master and just ask for more of you, uh, for those in the room that are not yet in Christ. According to the Psalms, uh, According to the Seraphonician woman, God, that's a, that's a good, right, kingdom request that I can ask of you, God, and so I want to. So Lord, I, I pray that you would lead people to faith today, uh, that you would open eyes, you would open ears, you would free them from the lie that they have to have it all figured out. They have to be the best parent, the best spouse, the best friend, the best Christian. That's all nonsense, according to total depravity. We can't, uh, there's only one who could go to the cross, and that's why it was you. If it was us, we would have went. And turns out we're all standing here in Collinsville. So God, we need you. Uh, to open our eyes and and open our ears, Lord. I pray and ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus. All God's people said. Every week we take communion together as a family. And so communion is not a religious event. Communion is a redemptive event. So if you're unable to grab a a little cup, before you start opening them all up, hold on to them for a second. If you weren't able to grab a cup, please make your way up front to the baskets. There's some communion cups sitting in there, totally normal to walk up there and and get them. I'm gonna read to you from 1 Corinthians like I do uh, every week and point you further to Jesus. Paul says this, he said, for I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. and so a lot of the topic for today in total depravity. Communion is a reminder, church, that we can't save ourselves. If we could have, we would have been sitting at that table saying the things he said, and we're not. And so whenever you look in the elements that you have in your hand, you have the piece of bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for you in your place as your substitute. And you have the cup there that represents Christ's blood that was spilt in your place as your substitute. And in that, it is a reminder that he's the only one that could go to the cross. He's the only one that could redeem. So communion, in effect, begins to bring humility, begins to kill pride, begins to remove arrogance, because we're called to remember his death that he took in our place as our substitute. So take that meal, take time to confess, God, I am trying to be master over everything, and then respond, God, help me to be a servant. Open my eyes, open my ears as a servant, and he'll do it. Yes, take and eat.